我是 Echo 赵，您正在收听 EE Times on Air。And I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor in Chief, and this is your briefing for the week ending November 15th. Last week, Junko Yoshida and I were in Shenzhen, attending the Global CEO Summit, where we hobnobbed with top executives of companies from all around the world. This week's episode will be dedicated to interviews we conducted at the event, which touched on every major trend in electronics today, including 5G wireless, advanced chip design and manufacturing, and artificial intelligence. During this episode, we'll hear from executives from companies based in the U.S., Europe, and China, including one of the world's oldest and most prestigious industrial and electronics companies, Siemens. And one of the world's youngest and most intensely scrutinized AI startups, Graphcore. All that and more coming up. The first bit of news Junko and I heard when we landed in Shenzhen was of a possible ceasefire in the Trump administration's trade war against China. The news, as such, was even more tenuous than that. A spokesman for China's Commerce Ministry said that. Both the U.S. and China would have to suspend tariffs as a prerequisite for the so-called Phase One trade deal that President Trump incorrectly said he had forged with China last month. Absent any progress in negotiations, tariffs will remain in place, as will U.S. efforts to ban sales of U.S. chips to Chinese OEMs. Chinese executives we spoke to said they'd prefer to keep buying the best chips they can find, which often enough are being sold by U.S. companies. But since they can't buy from Americans, they're turning to other suppliers. And if those products are second best, well, so be it. Chinese companies appear to be holding out hope for some resolution to the trade war. However, we sat down with respected industry veteran Charles Tan. Here's what he had to say about it. My personal opinion is that China and the U.S. or,、uh, you know,、uh, American companies—it's so difficult to decouple, right, and leave each other. So, right. So、uh, uh, one thing I think, you know, it's probably the end of honeymoon, but the marriage still exists.、Mm-hmm. We need each other, and certainly, you know, if we are focusing on rather than taking the share from the other side,、uh, if we can work together, much closer, smarter. Uh, we probably can really increase the pie, and at the end of the day, every party enjoys. We've heard similar things from American executives too, but this trade war has been grinding on for more than a year, and every hint of a resolution thus far has been followed by another setback in negotiations. For every optimist like Charles Tan, Junko and I encountered someone equally pessimistic. We were let in on a joke that seems to be making the rounds within China's high tech industry. Donald Trump must be China's best friend. The joke goes. After all, he's helping China's electronics industry to become self-sufficient faster than it was planning to. But what if the trade war does get resolved? Would business go back the way it was? The responses that Junko and I heard from several Chinese electronics industry executives was,、eh, maybe, but probably not, because the damage is already done. The Global CEO Summit is paired with another event called the, and I'm going to take a deep breath here, the Global Distribution and Supply Chain Leaders Summit. It's an event for electronics distribution. Distribution is sort of the Rodney Dangerfield of the electronics industry. Let me tell you, distribution doesn't get any respect, no respect at all. And yet, 
Distributors are responsible for an enormous chunk of global electronics sales, and their in-house design experts, FAEs, or field applications engineers, are critical for supporting smaller electronics companies everywhere. So, with so many distributors milling about, one of the hottest topics in Shenzhen was Texas Instruments. Recently, TI decided to cut its ties with most of its longtime distributors. Once again, here's Charles Tan, who until recently served as president of the China Electronics Distribution Association. It's a shocking news. Their go-to-market, my opinion, is that go direct with the customers. Go direct. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when you go direct to the customers, certainly it requires lots of resources. Right? Today, the technology, when you look at TI Store or the IT technologies, uh, probably will allow a possibility for big customer or big companies to go direct with the, to, to the uh, customers. Uh, whether this is going to work, uh, I don't know. Right. But they certainly will have uh, effect. Uh, number one, if TI is able to uh, successfully launch this go-to-market strategy, uh, question is, what about the other component manufacturers? So what about the existing channel partners? Are they motivated? to promote TI technologies mm. or products. Right? So, As a flip side. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, now whether it's a TI strategy to go uh, get rid of some of the low-end products, uh, they will focus on only those they are good at. Right. Uh -huh. So again, that's a question. So I think it's still too early to, to tell. Right. Now it's important to see how the other uh, component manufacturers will do right, in a year or two. Our colleague Echo Zhao is the chief analyst of Aspen Corp China and was the moderator at the Supply Chain Summit. Uh, that was Echo introducing the show today, by the way. She explained that TI decided to drop six electronics distributors, including three top-tier players in China. We also asked Echo about the response to TI's decision. There were at least 1,000, more than 1,000 sales and FAEs lost their job. But an executive from TI's former distributor felt sorry about losing TI, but he said he still believes that TI is smart to do it, and he admired TI's move. He believes that ST and Qualcomm will do the same thing in the future. They will follow <laughs> suit. Interesting. So TI has given up the low-end market. So I mean, I mean, TI knows that if it did not give it up, the market would have been eaten by China IC companies eventually. So TI prepared for this oh, for six years, maybe more than six years. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and TI has a very strong e-commerce system that will help. For so the individuals in the smaller companies could come in right. if they wanted right. via yeah. E-commerce. Right, Interesting. right. Yeah. And it, That's a theory. <laughs> <laughs> EE Times and our sister publications did some additional reporting following last week's summits in China. ST Microelectronics told us it has no plans to trim its distributor list. Qualcomm has not yet responded to our questions, but also has made no public announcement that suggests it will emulate Texas Instruments. Last year at the Global CEO Summit, it seemed that everyone was talking about artificial intelligence. This year, the conversation was all over the map. Keynoters talked about 5G, intelligent sensors, exascale computing, 
product design technology, and mobile communications. And, of course, artificial intelligence. GraphCore is taking an approach the company insists is conceptually unique. Companies attempting to implement AI typically use GPUs, CPUs, and FPGAs. GraphCore is building something it says is none of the above. It calls its device an Intelligence Processing Unit, or IPU. Junko asked GraphCore CEO Nigel Toon, what exactly is an IPU? One of the ways to think about this is in conventional processing, which we've been doing now for a very long time. You know, 75 years was the first electronic computer was made. The, the word computer comes originally from people who did maths operations, right, and replaced by machines. But we tell computers what to do, step by step in a program. Um, whereas now what we're doing is we're learning from data. And, you know, so the machine is having to work and compute in a very different way from the conventional step through a program, follow a path in a program. So there is a program, but the programs are actually very simple. Mainly what it is, is huge amounts of parallel compute that is going on. And the data structures that we really need to be able to build are very, very different. You know, it's not like take a big block of data and, and perform some operation on it, you know, take, take this block of pixels and paint them blue, for example, what you want to do is to really be able to, it's almost like finding needles in haystacks. You're looking for different strands of information and pulling those together, working out which are the important ones. Right. And so, you know, you, you need to be able to take a piece of data from here, take a piece of data from there, bring it to the processor, do some compute, write the answer back somewhere else. So, so the data structures and the memory structures that you therefore need are very different. And computer architectures follow the data. So, so if you look at how computers evolve, you know, they've really evolved around what are the data structures you're, you're trying to process on. So, you know, network processing, for example, streams of packets coming through that you can then handle, you know, in a nice convenient way. Uh, graphics processing the same, you know, large blocks of pixels that I need to work on, typically the same operation that I'm doing across lots and lots of a block of, of pixels. So single instruction, multiple data. What we now need is multiple instruction, multiple data, um, and we need to be able to do that with huge amounts of compute on what could be very sparse data. Um, and so the, the, the architecture of the machine needs to be very, very different. But you also need to design it in such a way that you don't push all of that complexity onto the programmer. The programmer just needs to be able to say, look, this is my knowledge model. This is how, you know, the data is going to be structured, um, you know, make it work. And, and so we've built a, a together with the processor, we've built a software um, system we call Poplar. We've developed those two very much together, step by step, um, to be able to actually take high-level descriptions in frameworks like TensorFlow or PyTorch and have them efficiently mapped um, onto the processor. Are there any Chinese AI chip companies you're paying attention to? Well, I think there's a, there's a number of very well-funded AI chip companies in China. You know, we obviously pay attention to you know, many of the companies. I think somebody told me that there's 70 companies trying to build yeah. chips for, for AI. But yeah, maybe this is the wrong, wrong approach. And I always describe it as the Italian rule of driving. So the Italian rule of driving is the rear view mirror doesn't matter. You don't need it. 
All you need to do is drive very fast and be ahead of everybody else. And, and, and then what, what is behind you doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. So, so, so that's, I think that's kind of our attitude. We, we started much earlier than yeah. many of the other companies. We've developed products. We've got products with customers. We're learning from customers already what's needed. Our software is much more advanced. Our architecture is much more advanced. And, and somehow what we've got to do is we've, we've got to run fast and make sure that we can keep our advantage and, and stay ahead. And I also describe it as it's a bit like you go on a railway but you don't want to go on somebody else's railway. You don't want to follow somebody else, right? You don't want to copy what somebody else is doing. You want to lay your own tracks and go in your own direction and have your own differentiated um, approach. And, and eventually, if you're right, people will follow you on your tracks. When we asked how far this new IPU has penetrated the AI market, Nigel said, we're just at the beginning. Graphcore is spending half a billion dollars in this business over the next few years, however, to push this new computing architecture. Toon told us that the industry today, quote, feels like the dawn of microprocessors in the 1970s, which he wants us to know he was too young to remember. But what he meant, he said, is that he expects AI and devices like Graphcore's IPU to help create a new round of Intels and Apples. One of the other major themes at the summit was the introduction of 5G technology. Corvo is one of the leading suppliers of integrated circuits that handle radio frequency signals. And this is the stuff that makes wireless products wireless. We spoke with Roger Hall, Global General Manager of Corvo's high-performance products. I asked him what are the biggest challenges that the industry is facing with 5G. The biggest challenge to start out with is from a market perspective. As China's around 70% of the world's share of base stations. They believe that there are already around 86,000 radios, base stations installed to date, with plans to be 130,000 by the end of the year. So the ramp is starting, but this, it's a significant ramp. They will be rolling out over a million radios or base stations this next year. And so the, the challenge goes then the amount of just pure volume to be produced. And that's not just for the, op, the OEMs, but it's for all the supply chain. And so um, scale is a key thing. So being able to scale and that then not only just the volume, but providing it a high quality and supporting the, the continued on-time delivery and support that they need as they ramp. So that's the, the, the first challenge from a technology perspective, what they're looking for is and why is 5G important? Um, it's about more capacity for the network. The, the amount of load that we generate from our smartphones or uh, with the next generation of 5G, there's actually three elements they're focusing on. IoT, so it's the backbone of IoT, as well as the smartphones, as well as the man-to-machine connections or machine-to-machine connections. So those three elements create a lot of additional demand on the network. I followed that up by asking him about the technological challenges. Because there's many different use cases and many different applications, it creates different challenges for each one of those. If we just look at the cell phone, it's always about battery life. It's about the performance. It's about the, the dozens of bands that it has to cover. And 
So then there's lots of need for filtering and for antenna tuning and for range to, to connect to the network. So there's many, many technical over, um, items that have to be overcome from the antennas, where do they fit in the phone, how do I get them all in, to all the switching to the, of, of all those bands, and then, then amplifying and, and cleaning those signals up so that you get uh, high quality data. And again, as, as a personal user, we want our batteries to last, but as the IoT, they also want the um, units to last a long time. So they'll have different requirements of low latency and for many of the robotics items as well. So the exciting thing with 5G is not just um, is all these new markets are gonna come up. There's lots of opportunities for innovation of many companies all over the world. Um, some people look at it as it's a race to who's going to deploy, deploy first. Mm -hmm. I look at it more of this is an enabling of a lot of exciting new technologies that are going to be created. And to your point, what are the barriers? It's about how do you get all those signals in that little bitty phone? And how do we get all that additional data through the network? So what, they've, what they're rolling out in China is 2.6 and 3.5 gigahertz this year as the primary 5G bands. And with those 5G bands, their broader bandwidth, which allows then a lot more capacity, which creates technical challenges. How do you have 200 megahertz of bandwidth, instantaneous bandwidth, in the past where it's been 10 to 20, right? So you end up with more complications within the phones as well as more complications within the base stations and how do we support those. In the future, you're right, we'll see 4.9 gigahertz in China. Um, around the world, you'll see those similar bands, slightly different locations, and in some cases, as you said, a millimeter wave, which creates a, a non-linear, very, very complicated situation. Um, there's been point-to-point -point and there's been defense applications, but mass deployment becomes a challenge. So then what are the operators looking at us to help them solve? CapEx is a huge issue. How do we deploy all of this new network at an affordable cost. And then after it's deployed, it takes lots of power. So they're looking at, from an OPEX perspective, what can we do to help lower that energy usage? How do we make it greener? And that's where GAN comes into play, where it's much more efficient over broadband. And it's where the high efficiency switching comes into play and antenna tuning that we have on our cell phones and these different things that help reduce the total amount of power consumed. It's always about reliability. That's a key thing in this industry. You want them to put them out on there for five, 10, 15 years and not be touched. And then it's just about performance to those needs. Junko and I took a walk through one of Shenzhen's shopping districts. There were many storefronts touting the advent of 5G, many of them encouraging people to sign up with the major carriers for 5G phone services that weren't even available yet. Product design has grown up in silos. Companies that design integrated circuits have had dedicated design tools. Companies that design mechanical products have had their own dedicated design tools. Of course, very many products combine electronic, electrical, and mechanical subsystems, so it's been a long-term goal to unify all of these tools. The design industry is finally beginning to do that. 
Tony Hemmelgarn is president and CEO of Siemens Digital Industry Software, which for a couple of years now has also owned Mentor Graphics. Key to the company's vision of integrated manufacturing design is the concept of the closed-loop digital twin. Junko sat down with Tony last week and asked him, what the heck does that mean? I guess the best way to define digital twin is um, it's the linkage of what we define as the physical world to the virtual world. Why is that important? As, um, As products become more complex, the value of the digital twin is how closely we can represent that linkage between physical and virtual. Right, so for example, if you can represent the mechanical characteristics, the software, the electronics, the electrical systems, all of those things are part of what makes a complex product. Right? And so you can imagine if you can only represent the mechanical characteristics, the value of the digital twin is only for the mechanical characteristics right. of the product. Right? So the value is how much you can represent holistically of yes. that product. Right? And we use this for um, design, verification, validation, these types of things. But also, it's this concept of a closed-loop digital twin. And what do we mean by closed-loop? Closed-loop says that uh, we can gather information about what's happening with a product or a manufacturing process. Most industrial IoT solutions today will provide you information about preventive maintenance, condition monitoring, these types of things, right? But we want to know more. And, and the way we do that is we leverage this digital twin. Now, some say that if you throw enough data at the problem, you know, you grab enough information through machine learning and artificial intelligence and so forth, you can solve any problem. The issue with that is sometimes too much data can act like too little data. For example, I can show a direct linkage today between the number of people in the United States that have advanced degrees in civil engineering and the per capita consumption of mozzarella cheese, right? Two things that have nothing to do with each other, right? But with enough data, I can make it look like that, right? So now think about complex products and complex manufacturing techniques. With enough data, how do I know I'm not making the same false correlations between engineering and cheese as I am between these types of things? So we feel like the best way to do this is to augment this process with a closed loop digital twin. So for example, if I've designed a product, I've run the analytics, I've done all the work, I know exactly how it's going to operate through my digital twin. But then I get it into, into usage. And I'm finding out, well, I've got a problem I did not anticipate. Maybe something's happening. Maybe it's an environmental issue. Maybe I'm in an area of the world that's very high humidity. And so I'm seeing some kind of a problem. Maybe I've got a vibration problem or something that's occurring, right? So I can take that data and I can bring it back to my digital model and try to understand what's happening. Because I have real-life data now, actual vibration data, that can feed back into my digital model and start playing what-if scenarios. What's happening with this thing, Right? And so I can validate exactly where the core root cause of a problem may be coming from. Or even propose design changes based on what I'm finding, based on that model. The reason that's so important is oftentimes with these IoT systems, they tell you have a problem again, but they don't tell you why. And really, do I need IoT to tell me a machine's overheating? <laughs> right? I've had that capability for many, many years. A red light goes off and says it's overheating. Or the experienced workers come in to see there's some anomalies on the factory floor. And don't forget that experienced worker. I'll talk about that later as to how where this goes in the future because I think it's a key, important aspect of this. But again, I, I know I've got a problem, but I want to know why. I want to know why it's overheating. I, don't, I just don't want you to tell me it's overheating. Preventive maintenance condition monitoring, those are very important things, and that's where most people will start with IoT solutions. But we feel like it has so much more to offer if you do the closed-loop process, right? So that's for a product. But now think about a manufacturing process. It's no different. 
um, I can simulate the entire factory. I've designed the factory. I know the flow of the factory. I know everything about that factory, right? And how it's going to operate and work. And if I start having issues, I can take those models and I can bring them back into, and I can simulate the factory. I could even, for example, simulate, let's, let's imagine I have a machine that goes down mm -hmm. and has a repair issue or whatever. I can simulate and rework the entire factory quickly to optimize based on a machine that I can't use anymore. And I can simulate that before I go back into the real life uh, production of that factory, right? So we think the closed loop process is extremely important. And this is the reason that frankly Siemens invested in software 11 years ago to bring this together because we felt like it's one thing to have the automation equipment that runs the factory, but we also want to be able to simulate this in a digital world and be able to show exactly how all this comes together. And this is why it's so valuable to our customers, because increasingly our customers are realizing that digital twin isn't a nice to have thing. It's becoming essential because think about the complexity of products that are being built today. So many factors. And if you think you're going to solve that by looking at a spreadsheet and looking at a list of issues, it's not realistic, right? And so with a digital backbone, I can now make those decisions much more confidently, much quicker. And we, we talk about complexity. Product, the complexity is not going to go away in products. Now, some say you should try to limit complexity. We see it differently. We see it as the companies that are going to move faster, lower the production cost, increase their design capabilities faster than the best, the, the other companies, and also create new business models, those are the ones that are going to use complexity as a competitive advantage, right? Because the more complex their products are and the more able they're able to represent this in digital models, the faster they can go than their competitive uh, or their competition. Where do you feel you need to beef up to promote this idea of closed-loop digital twin? Where do you go next? It's a great question, and now I link it back to what you said earlier. You commented about when the machine overheats, yes. the person that knows kind of sometimes is the guy that's been running that machine for many, many years. Exactly. Right? Experience, the experts, yeah. So when we developed our IoT solution, MindSphere, yeah. one of the challenges we had is how do we build enough applications to be able to leverage the value of the data that's coming in, right? Now, you can go to your traditional IT organization, and you've got two problems there. One is most of those IT organizations are way overloaded. They have so many things to work on, they'll never get to the apps that I need on my factory floor or whatever, right? The second issue is the domain knowledge doesn't rest with them. It rests with the guy that's down at the machine, right? And so recently we acquired a company called Mendix. Mendix is a low-code application software development tool. Low-code means I don't have to be a software developer to write my applications, right? We put the software development into the hands of the domain knowledge users, right? And so they can diagram the application the way they want it to be. And from that, they can develop applications very, very quickly, right? And so we've taken it out of having to be a software developer to build the applications and put it in the hands of the people that actually have the domain knowledge to build these quickly. In fact, I'll show some examples of that this morning as well when we go through presentations. But the value of that is, is that it helps the IT organization because they've got enough to worry about right now, and it allows us to build applications that quickly can, can do this. Mendix had already been doing this for years. They've been around for 15 years. They're, they're kind of still a startup, even after 15 years, um, but they focus mostly on um, business applications like HR, finance, these types of things, and they're very successful at doing this. 
We looked at it and said, could we do that, but also apply it to industrial applications? And so we're about uh, nine months into this acquisition, and we're already seeing many, many examples of how to do this and bring this together. And so our customers get excited because they realize, gosh, I could go very quickly now with this closed-loop digital twin because now I'm not dependent on even Siemens to build the applications. I can build them myself very quickly, and I use the solution that Siemens provides with a combination of MindSphere, Mendix, and our software solutions that we have today. Do you have any examples of people who have been successful in developing their own software using Mendix? Yeah, we do. We have, well, I mean, some of them, again, they, they won't talk they won't yet, but um, yeah. Mendix has many, many customers that have been successful on the business side. Right. For example, again, Huawei is one of the customers that is using Mendix on the business side. And we're talking to those customers today about how do you apply it to industrial, the industrial side. And you'll see more and more of that out from us over the next few months where more and more increasingly customers will talk about this. Today, they're still early in this, but I can assure you they're very excited about this with what we're doing. That correlation between college graduates and mozzarella consumption? Hemelgarn called that degrees to cheese. <laughs> I love that. Synopsis chairman and co-CEO Art JS was also at the Global CEO Summit. Synopsis is pursuing a similar strategy to the digital twin, which Synopsis more prosaically refers to as virtual models. We have more about both Siemens and Synopsis in a story published on eetimes.com called From 5G to Climate Change and Back Again. Yole Development is a French analysis firm that focuses on technologies whose roadmaps are not locked into Moore's Law. These are things such as power devices, sensors, and microelectromechanical systems, or MEMS. Jean-Christophe Aloy is president and CEO of Yole Development. Junko asked him what he sees as the most important trends in the coming years. Two that are important, one that is for me super important. One of the very important things is that the, the evolution of electric vehicles, but also of the generation of energy by wind, solar, and so on, is driving the evolution of the power management on power electronics in order to have more compact modules to move from silicon to silicon carbide. And this is a very huge trend because it's changing the structure of the industry for power electronics and changing the way you are manufacturing the device. So moving out of silicon to move to silicon carbide. It's a very important trend. Another trend is that, well, you need sensors for everything. Sensors for the IoT, sensors for the uh, artificial intelligence, because you need data to do in artificial intelligence. You need sensors for ADAS, for the cars, for autonomous vehicles, and so on and so on. So sensors are moving step by step to any products. I think a mobile phone, high-end mobile phone now has 22 sensors. It's huge, and cars, it's more than that. So sensors are really moving everywhere. Uh, but this is trends that are already well established since long time, so it's increasing at the moment, but it's something that started really 15, 20 years ago. One of the key evolution that we see at the moment is having the, the technology to shape and structure light and manage light. Mm -hmm. What was done in shoebox or in rooms 10 years, 20, the big optical systems, now you're able to manufacture and integrate them in a less than one cubic centimeter. And it's the convergence of image sensors, yes. is the convergence of optics management with lenses, micromirrors, and so on, and light emission with vexels. Yes. And all these technologies were both bulky and expensive, 
and now it's starting to be well very integrated and the the first products showing this integration like 3d sensing in mobile phones but also la very compact lidar, LiDAR yeah. gas sensors are step by step happening on the market and leveraging 25 years of developments of light management technologies to move from very bulky system to very tiny and cheap technologies. And it's a, it's a key movement and which shape well, tens of billions of, of new business and which is really the convergence between silicon, optics, um, light management and coming from macro mechanics, coming from pure sensing and also coming from the um, LED and uh, Vexel business. So that's really the convergence of a lot of things that had happening independently until now. Can you tell me who are actually leading in that big trend towards the integration of lighting system and the imaging and optics and all that? What is interesting is that you have companies that are coming from different parts of this industry. For example, you have companies that are coming from more the, the, the camera module, so the, the integration. Yes. Uh, it's a company like LG Notech, for example. You have companies that are coming from the sensing part, like Sony, Sony, which is really the world leader for image sensors. You have companies that are coming for more from the driving side, like AMS, that has made multiple acquisitions in order to move from driver to light shaping to image sensors. Yes. Uh, you have companies like ST Macro that is also coming from the from more the image sensor business. So wow. you have four or five companies that are really leading the way, coming from different parts of this in the industry, yes. but having the same focus saying, okay, now you are able to really structure modules with light generations, optics, light shaping, and detections in a very compact module. Tell me that more of an application of that. Uh, we, you, we talked about LiDAR. We talked about the 3D sensing in smartphones. How would that change our life in terms of the applications? Well, it's, it's mainly integration of new functions that were not... Uh, well, you, that were not available for consumer or automotive applications. Mm -hmm. So LiDAR is something that is already well, a very big market, but not for automotive. And so the ability to integrate, lower the cost, and keep the accuracy is very key. And this is what these technologies are enabling. 3D sensing in the same way, face recognition was a high-end security feature, which is now in phones. And this is really the, the ability of these technologies to do that. Exactly. But there is other things that are that are developing. For example, um, uh, microphones are very important for many products. Sure. But the problem of microphones, which is very important, is that to have a microphone, you need an interface to the external world to get the sound. Uh, but to have that kind of technologies uh, in that could be able to work in a dust environment, in environments where you have uh, water and so on, is very complex. Uh -huh. And optical microphones are coming on in order to be able to do that. Oh, in other optical microphone. So you have that kind of things that are emerging, which will not be totally visible from the user, right. but it's changing the structure of the device in order to enable it to work in a lot of different environments for the microphone or integrate functions that were not well accessible for consumer applications up to now. And there is also an impact, for example, of this technology more for IN functions. Optical integration is also optical interconnections. It's moving to silicon photonic, and it's pushing the optic interconnections from uh, the fiber optics that were between two continents right. 
to something that is getting closer to data center, to inside data center, and inside the data center, inside the rack, and step by step, the light is moving up to the silicon chip. So it will take 10, 15 years to move into the silicon chip, but it, this is this movement, and it's enabling by these technologies of integration of light generation, light chipping, and detection. Sensor technology is fundamentally passive in that sensors react to some phenomenon, light, sound, motion. But the technology has taken some leaps in recent years. Radars, LIDARs, 3D mapping techniques, they all make it possible to not just detect things, but to identify what's in the environment. Pierre Lebois is Executive Vice President of Global Sales at AMS. I asked him about this transformation in sensor technology and what practical applications there might be. I will go back into the car uh, to, to illustrate or to picture, I mean, and answer the question. Um, the, uh, the, the, the 3D in the car, right, I mean, uh, will help to, uh, to, to authentify and, and, uh, and also create uh, safetyness, I would say, around the, uh, the passengers, the drivers, and everything which is in the car. So uh, in that case, it's, more, it's, it's way beyond detecting. It's uh, sensing and anticipating. And the way you do it, I mean, you do it with, three, with 3D within the car. You also do it with multiple of uh, sensors that you have from, from your seat to your steering wheel to, uh, to also uh, some of those cameras, I mean, that have those sensor technology. So it's really, I mean, you know, uh, sensing to anticipate. If you look at, uh, if you would take an example in the, uh, you know, again, in the health, uh, healthcare uh, segment, uh, there, I mean, you, you do not detect. You, you there again. You anticipate uh, uh, to to be able to uh, to measure some uh, some critical vagal tone, as an example, right? Or your heart heartbeat. I mean, monitoring. So, uh, and this is not detecting. Detecting was when the the uh, the beginning of the sensor were launched and where it was more mechanical. I would say. Uh, it's becoming way more digital today, and uh, and that goes to uh, to the evolution from ICs to solution to what you can do in fusion. By the way, I asked Pierre to tell us more about sensor fusion. Sensor fusion, I mean, uh, is a direction I mean that uh, a lot of companies will take. I would say, and and the objective is also I mean you know around adjacent I would say, but very important adjacent objective is is how do you save and gain power? I mean, raise efficiency. And, uh, and as you know, just said, I mean, how you combine, I mean, different, you know, uh, different, you know, capabilities uh, out of uh, sensors I see, I mean, to be able to, uh, to merge fusion once again and, and, uh, and support multiple type of applications. So um, you could imagine in, uh, in, in the near future, I mean, you know, uh, you know, a sense of fusion, I mean, to serve, I mean, multi-purpose, whereas today, Sensor or sensor ICs, I mean, you know, could be only binary serving one principle or one, one application or one whatever. So that's, that's really, I mean, the evolution it takes. That was Pierre Lebois of Sensor Specialist AMS. So that wraps our interviews from the Global CEO Summit in Shenzhen. As I said, the subject matter was all over the technological map. That said, there was an overarching theme. Everyone in the industry is trying to find ways to make sense of the escalating flood of data. After listening to the speakers at last week's Global CEO Summit, it seems there's been a subtle change in focus. 
We've gone beyond simply trying to create a sensor-rich environment and are now trying to figure out how to analyze sensor data locally so that it's actionable. Enabling AI is no longer enough. Now the concern is using it efficiently to render useful results. 5G is no longer about just adding capacity. Now it's about enabling new applications. In a keynote that opened the Global CEO Summit, Wei Xiaojun, the president of the IC design branch of the China Semiconductor Industry Association, said, 5G is not just mobile communications. This will affect the entire infrastructure of the nation. That wraps our weekly briefing for the week ending November 15th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. We'll be back next Friday with a new edition of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santos.